Well, Romans chapter 2, we've made it to verse 17. We're going to look at verse 17 through 24. I titled the message, A False Security. And again, we have a lot of ground to cover. So let's recap a couple of things, and then we'll get into these verses here. Now, it, it's no secret that the sum of Romans 1, 1, uh, 18 through Romans 3.20 that the great apostle Paul is dealing with the unrighteousness of the entire human family, the entire human race. And every unregenerate soul is being whittled down to bare bones humanity, right to the very core of the being, directly to the studs of the human frame, which is a great place to be because it needs to divide the false from the true to get us to take another look at the evidence to take our hearts out in a sense and inspect them because it's the heart that God is after and it's the heart that Paul is after and it's the heart that we should be after. Now we're going to look at a few things today. We'll look at false securities because there are many of them in the world today. We'll look at marrying our words with our works, what that looks like, what it should look like, and what it shouldn't look like. And then the third thing I want to look at is what you see is what you get. In other words, the way that we live our lives sometimes in this world is the way that others may view our God that we serve. And what kind of reflection is that? And we'll look at the Pharisee's life. Now, in order to find out foundations and what our lives are built upon, the entire human race is put on trial here with Paul. And it really is an act of kindness, if you think about it. To tell somebody the truth about their sin is a good thing. But it doesn't always feel good, and we're not always looked at as well-pleasing people when we point these things out to them. And we're not viewed as being kind and being accepting of certain personalities or certain lifestyles that people are living. And so we find Paul, unashamed of the gospel, but part of bringing the gospel is talking about judgment. And this is the only place to begin before we could talk about redemption. And that's the best place to start, to ask somebody, what right do you have to go to heaven? What do you base it upon? And boy, that strips it down to the foundation, doesn't it? What are you basing your salvation on? This is the point. Now here, many have uh, developed wonderful outlines for us in the past, and let's follow some of those through. In chapter 1, we find the state of the degraded pagan world. So clear indications of open sin were on display for us all to see. That's what he was showing to us. In chapter 2, we find the state of the culture, Gentiles and moralists, who we talked about. Also the Jews, which we'll look more in depth on here. The Jews who judged those in sin openly, and yet in their own lives behind closed doors, they were living the same way. And again in chapter 2, the state of the religious Jews, and then the complete indictment of the entire world. That is what we're looking at. So you and I have just finished up last couple of weeks, verses 1 through 16 in chapter 2, which are really a single section. And now we go a little bit deeper. 
So that section that gave us the principles of divine judgment, that's what we were looking at. In other words, the principles that God uses to judge men who have not accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. That's what we've been looking at. And they've been broken down into six categories within these verses, 1 through 16. We looked at knowledge is no guarantee. We looked at their truth is no guarantee. We looked at guilt, deeds, impartiality, and motive, all of these things. And now to package it all up and tie it with a bow, Paul proved that all people have knowledge of the truth. They knew not only from natural external revelation, they knew from conscience. And if conscience is part of an unbeliever, it's part of a believer as well. So everyone knows by conscience and revelation. But even more still is the Jew, the man of the law. He has even more than that. He has the scriptures. So they had the light of nature. They had the light of conscience and the light of the revealed word of God. Therefore, they have more responsibility. And think about who has even more responsibility. Those of us today. We have even more responsibility today. And none of this that he's talking about can save anyone from the judgment to come. None of it. All of it's false. You can't stand on it. And the only thing you can stand on is Jesus Christ. So this letter brings the human condition and the entire human race into the courtroom, into this forum, into the place of judgment. And it is shown to be utterly guilty and begins to utterly unravel. And you find yourself wondering, and you, you're, you're brought down lower and lower, wondering to yourself, well, how is it then that we're saved? That's the point. That's what he's attempting to do, to strip it all down. And it's a great way to do it. And now that what Paul does is he brings it right home. He begins attacking the most precious thing to the Jew. And what was that? That was their nationality. That was their source of pride. That's what they boasted in. And it's a false security. So here in verse 17, we start and it says to us, Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. Now, in order to see God's righteousness, we must first see our unrighteousness. Paul has been saying to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, that's because revelation came to the Jew first. They had all the scriptures And if revelation comes to the Jew first, what will come first to them as well? Judgment. Essentially what is taking place now is the Apostle Paul is summoning all the proud worldly Sadducees and Pharisees into the courtroom for arraignment. And what's the charge on their lives? They failed more more miserably than those of less light and fewer privileges. The ones they were pointing their finger at. They failed miserably because the light they were given, they should have known better. 
Now we see here that it says, indeed, you are called a Jew. Some versions, maybe even your Bible says, indeed, you are called a Jew. If yours says like mine, indeed, you are called a Jew, there's a footnote below that says, NU text reads, but if. Now, what does that mean? Well, the NU text is, if you read in the preface of your Bibles, it tells you what this means. It generally represents the Alexandrian or Egyptian text type as found in what they call the critical text published in the 26th edition of the Nestle Allen's Greek New Testament, which is the N, and the United Bible uh, Third Edition, which is the U. So the NU is what they call the critical text. Most versions, in other words, agree that it says, but if, but if you call yourself a Jew, and if is the key word here, if you call yourself a Jew, what's interesting here is the Apostle Paul this is the first time he actually names who he's talking to exactly, and he's bringing it down home to the Jew. Now, Paul is using it more as an accusation than anything else. If you call yourself a Jew, then you should know better. That's what he's drilling down to. And who better to know than Paul? He knows their thoughts. He knows what they were trained up in all of their lives. He knows what their thoughts are going forward, serving God, what they are attempting to do. And Jew, that word Jew was first used in 2 Kings 16.6. The men of Judah became known as the Jews. Now, they had three different things that they looked at. Hebrews, when they were called Hebrews, that spoke of their language. Israelites pointed to their lands, but Jews spoke of their nationality. And this is what they're resting on, their nationality. We're Jews. At one time, it was a blessing to be called a Jew. Think about how that name is used now. It's not such a blessing anymore. But there's a reason why. And I'm going to show you guys what those, some of those reasons are. And Paul names them here. But we still see a lot of the things that they were doing there doing then that they're doing now and we'll get into that a little bit more so at one time it was a blessing those from judah because the root meaning of the word is praise these were to be the nation of praise this was to be the nation of praise but it turned out to be so, something else because of human sin so a people, a land, a heritage that was supposed to be a light unto the world, as Isaiah talks about, is supposed to be a reflection of their God. Their very existence was to praise God and reach out to the Gentiles. And there is a good sense of national pride, don't you think? I think there is a great sense of national pride. It's when it becomes arrogance is when it turns. See, there's nothing wrong with a good sense of national pride. Mordecai had that kind of pride in Esther 3, 4, when he says, for Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew, and he said it with pride, and they still had a good name. There was something special about the attitude in which it was said. 
it, it was more like saying, I'm privileged that God would count me worthy to be a Jew. And we have to look at our Christianity in the same way. God counts me worthy to save my life rather than saying, I'm a Christian and you're not. And you're going to hell and I'm not. You see what's happening here? You see the trend that's happening here? You see the Jew and the Christianity coming together and just clashing? Because there's a lot of similarities, especially in national pride in American Christianity today. And it's going to reveal some things that are going on. See, the Apostle Paul, he's being very loving by making the Jew face his inadequate false securities. And we have to face ours. See, we can't say, well, I've gone to church all my life, therefore I'm Christian. My parents took me to, to, to church when I was a kid, so I'm Christian. I come from a Christian family, therefore I'm Christian. I come from a Christian nation. On and on and on it goes. But that doesn't make anybody a Christian. Accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior is the only thing. He's the only way. We understand this. We know this. But there are a lot of people sitting in church that claim to be Christian that are not. That's what the Bible teaches. Separating the wheat from the chaff. This is what's going to be happening at the end days and the end times. People are going to be discovering. They're going to turn away. Great apostasy is going to happen. This is why we have to drill down. So there's inadequate false securities. It's a loving thing to point these out. And there were three high and elevated privileges that the Jew had to face in these verses that gave him this false sense of security. And Paul begins to break them down. Number one, that they were part of the nation of Israel. Well, that doesn't get you there. Number two, that he possessed the law of God, which we're going to look at in depth today. And three, that he was circumcised, which we'll get more into next week. So the word Jew carried a lot of weight with it. It was as Albert Barnes said about the name Jew, it came to denote all the peculiarities and special favors of their religion. They were given a lot of privileges, a lot of light. It's what they rested on. It represented the entire mosaic economy. But the very thing that they stood upon was actually the very thing crushing them in judgment. Because they thought that's what saved them. But now they're being told that's what's going to judge them. Because they're not living it out in their lives. Jew lost its meaning of praise. It became a word of disdain, even in many circles today. Because there's lying, there's cheating, there's ripping off. That's what they were doing then. That's what many do now. Why is that? Because anybody who's not a Jew is looked down upon as nothing. It's just to get them to their place. That's what was happening then. That's what happens today in many circles. Sad to say, isn't it? But that's exactly the, the view. So the accusation here... You call yourself a Jew, but what comes with all of that, guys? And why are you not demonstrating that all that it entails, all that you were called to do? Being a Christian is to be Christ-like, not to separate out, not to go inward, but to go out. Same thing with the Jews. 
You're not demonstrating all that it entails, what you're supposed to be doing. So we find them here in these verses resting in the law. They're boasting about God and that they know his will, that they're teachers of babes, that they're instructors. And Paul has some accusations. And Paul was right. They did have knowledge of the law and of God's will. In fact, Psalm 147, 19 and 20 tells us, he declares his word to Jacob or Israel, his statutes and his judgments to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. He hasn't given his scriptures to any other nation, but to them. They were privileged in that way, but it wasn't seen as a privilege anymore. And not only do they know his will, they approved of the things that are more excellent. In other words, they tested everything to see how it held up to certain standards, the rights and the customs of the law. So they measured everything against what they knew. That tells us something. That tells us they understood right from wrong. That tells us they understood what they needed to do and what they shouldn't do. And the things that differ from heathen nations, therefore they were to excel in them. But instead of excelling, they looked at it as I'm above others. They're beneath me. They have no right to be with me. And we can gain those kinds of attitudes. In other words, they have a concern for spiritually superior standards. The law taught them how to assess moral standards, and yet they didn't live those moral standards. Because they were instructed out of the law, that's why they understood. They were instructed out of the law from their youth. When it says instructed here in these verses, what does that tell us? It's from the original word catecheo, or to catechize where we get the word catechism. It was to teach in an oral form, to sound down a meaningful repetition. And this teaching style indicated how oral instruction skillfully brought a subject from one level to another to reach a precise and growing understanding, and it was repetitious over and over, where eventually it just became something you said just by repeating it over and over eventually losing its meaning. But that's not what it actually produced in the Jew of this time. It didn't produce. It produced a boasting and a pride. Much like when many rest on today, in Catholicism especially, but now it's beginning in the Protestant church even more and more, this false security of infant baptism. It's no longer individual faith. It's either the faith of the, it's the faith of the church They claim it's the faith of everybody in the church that imparts that faith to that child who can't make a decision for themselves. I don't read that in the Bible. We all have to make that decision. That's a false security. All we've done is we've brought what the Jew relied upon and brought it into our Christianity or our Catholicism. That's all we've done. We've just renamed it but it's a false security. It's a trap door. This religion, this boasting and this pride, what was meant to be inclusive became exclusive. What was meant to reach those outside of the faith pushed them farther away because of how they were being viewed. And rather than it remaining a privilege to be a Jew, it became an exclusive club. 
the Jew went inward on itself rather than outward to the world. It was quite a different attitude than that of Mordecai. Now it became the attitude of I'm better than you. And my God is better than yours and you don't have my God. And not only that, you can't have my God because I'm going to keep him for myself. I'm not going to tell you about him. I'm good. You're not. You go to hell and I'll be good. We can get that kind of attitude. Who had that attitude in the Old Testament? (laughs) Not you, Mike. Mike's raising his hand. (laughs) Jonah had that attitude. Being sent to Nineveh. I'm not going to go. I don't want those heathens saved. No way. We look down upon them. All they're meant for is to burn in hell. They're to fan the flames. That's all Gentiles are for. That's what they were taught. Even though in the Old Testament it says they were to be a light to the Gentiles, but they forgot. They went inward. Without a doubt, as Paul enumerated this list of moral and religious distinctives, he got repeated affirmation responses from the Jewish leaders. Think about it. If he's reading, if they're reading this letter, you can imagine their faces and their heads bobbing up and down like, yeah, exactly. We're teachers of babes. Yeah, we are all these things that you say. We have the law. We are the Jews. Nobody else has it. And it's almost like he was drawing them in a little bit. And then he's going to lay into them. Not how we might think but out of love, out of loving kindness. Ian Blakelock rounds it off for us quite nicely, and he says, This passage is ironical. Human pride, the most elusive and persistent of human vices. Did you hear that? The most elusive and persistent of human vices. It is human pride. It can turn into a boast, even the grace which should humble and the privilege which should inspire lowly gratitude. That's what pride does. That's what human pride does. It takes the gratitude away. And we begin to think, we should have this. We deserve this. I deserve this. I mean, look at me. Why wouldn't God love me? And he wouldn't love you because of how you're living. That's what human pride does. All their rites and customs, the Jews, were to point to God and Messiah to come. That's what the whole Bible is about. All of their privilege was to be shared to convert the lost. And this enlightenment should have made their nation what it was from all time designed to be. And what was that? A missionary people. They were to be missionaries unto the world, yet they went inward and kept it for themselves. I see a lot of that happening today. It was a privilege. It was a responsibility. And all it became was mechanical, clinical, a dead religion filled with pride and of no use. That's what ends up happening. And what the Apostle Paul was doing here showed his kindness and his love to those who headed for judgment, those who rested on false hopes. You know, we also, we find ourselves fighting a lot against each other in churches about, you know, which church is right or which church is wrong when the true fight should be against a false religion. 
preaching something totally contrary to what the truth is. And we, we battle against the people who are lost rather than reaching out to the people who are lost. We blame them for the problems. And that's not what's happening. What does the Bible warn us? The New Testament warns us all the time about false teachers. And that's what comes into the church. He's showing kindness and love here to those headed for judgment, those who rested on false hopes, to wake up those trusting in false hopes about themselves and wake them up to the truth. It was to arouse their spirits to the truth that none of what they trusted in could help them escape the judgment to come, and they rested in a false hope. That's what he's doing. As we move on again in verse 21, it says, You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? What a list of questions. Why would he be asking these? Well, there were things that they were doing. See, they needed to marry their words with their works, and they weren't doing that. Even in pulpits today, we have many like that who will preach one thing, and then the life they live on the outside is completely contrary to what they're teaching. Why do you think many people don't want to come to church? Hypocritical. Many ways. So resting on these false hopes created what? It created a complacency in them. That's what they produce, complacency. Well, I'm, I'm saved. I can live any way I want. And it doesn't matter because I'm going to heaven. Is that the way of it? That's what false hopes do. They create complacency. Their living did not match their preaching and teaching. The light and the laws that were given, that they were instructed in all of their lives, were not lived out in their lives. To boast in the law implied their conviction of its excellence and its obligation. So they were boasting in something that they were supposed to live, and they weren't doing it. See, nobody boasts about things they think have no value. So they're boasting it because they believe it has value. And if it has value, then you have to consider what others are viewing. If you believe that it has value, you have to live it out. And they were breaking the very laws that they claim to value and uphold. And as actions are a true test of a person's real opinions, their breaking these laws did more damage to it in the eyes of others than their boasting did it to honor it. Isn't that interesting? It is the life and conduct, not merely the profession of the lips, that does the real honor to true religion. Some great words. The Apostle Paul was, in a sense, reeling these guys in. And he had the readers nodding their heads in agreement. Yes, this is us. Yes, look at us. And then he goes into these accusations. He hits them with this word, therefore. Therefore, if all of these things are accurate in your life, and you believe them, 
and you boast in them that they are accurate, then why don't you live it? Why does your life represent something totally contrary? In other words, if you are all these things and you agree, shouldn't you be living them out away from the temple and the synagogues? Or are you just living in pretense? But you're not, and you're living a hypocritical lifestyle. The burdens you place on others, you don't even live out yourself. Wasn't this Jesus' accusation against them in Matthew chapter 23? Do you remember that? Matthew 23, 2 and 4. The scribes and the Pharisees, they're sitting in Moses' seat, he's saying, and therefore whatever they tell you to observe, Jesus is teaching, that observe and do. This is what Jesus is telling them. Do what they're telling you to do. But Jesus goes on and he says, but do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. A nation that was to enlighten the world was actually making them worse sinners because they were placing burdens on them that nobody could keep, trying to earn their salvation. Isn't that what false religions do? They place burdens on people that nobody can keep. And you're left with a feeling of guilt. I can't earn it. And so when you tell them, well, then you're going to go to hell, then they say, well, there's not really a hell. You'll just dissipate into thin air and that'll be done. No, there's judgment. That's what a false religion does. But in Christianity, we tell you the truth. There will be a hell. There will be judgment, but there's a way of escape. You can settle out of court. To a Jew, these accusations in a letter like this, man, they must have been shattering. Like everything I trusted in is just shattered. That's the point. That's the very point. We want them to be shattered and broken. We need people to come to that place. I mean, this to them must have sounded like the most outlandish proclamation and left them angry. I mean, the Jews were certain that God regarded them with special favor, simply and solely because of their national descent from Abraham and because they bore the mark of circumcision on their bodies. That that makes us a Jew. Nothing else I need. But Paul is talking about something totally different. The heart. It's the heart. Paul is insisting that Jewishness is not a matter of race. It's not a matter of race at all, but a matter rather of conduct. Again, a matter of heart. And then he goes into this list of what they were doing. But how would he know they were doing these things? I mean, was he following them around? Not at all. You got to remember the Apostle Paul was part of this system. I'm sure he knew exactly what they were doing. See, isn't that interesting how you can minister to somebody else's life by the things that you experienced? I mean, yes, we're forgiven for those things, and we don't always want to remember those things. But when somebody else is going through those things, we're able to minister to those people and remind them, hey, I know, been there, I understand, just like Jesus did with us. So he's firmly bringing these accusations against them in this virtual court of law. 
The effect of the boasting and the pride and the heritage was that they came to believe they could do anything they wanted without worry of judgment. Well, hey, I'm of Abraham, God's chosen people. That's it, I'm in. I can live however I want. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. How they believed that Abraham would be sitting at the gates and say, oh no, you're a Jew. Oh no, you're a Jew. <laughs> you know? And we could think that as Christians. Oh, I'm in. I'm good. I come to church. I've confessed it with my lips. And I walk the walk. I mean, I look like it. But is it in your heart? That's where the matter is at. Is it in your heart? And you know who knows? Jesus knows. You know, that's something that you and I, when we say, oh, we inspect the fruit of a person's life and we can tell what's going on, if they're a Christian or not. No, you can't. You don't know. The Bible even says you don't know. Paul says, I don't even judge myself. I can't judge myself because I'm imperfect. I judge incorrectly. I don't understand. So we can't do that. And we got to be careful when we do. So he's bringing firmly these accusations against, against them in this court of law. And as a result of this attitude of, I can do and live however I want, they would teach one thing and they would live another way. And they were accused of lying and cheating and ripping people off for money. This is legalism. And in legalism, there's no ability to restrain sin. There's no ability to restrain sin. It only intensifies sin. Anybody caught up in a legalistic system where they are all trying to gain God's favor by their own works finds that they are unable to deny they're not able to deny their place. Micah 3.11 says, Her heads judge for a bribe, her priests teach for pay, and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? No harm can come to us. That's the accusation. These judges were being bribed. The priests were teaching for pay. They were hirelings. And we know what Jesus said about adultery when he talks about it here. Uh, adultery, the Apostle Paul talks about here. Jesus said that it doesn't begin with the physical. That's where it ends usually. It begins in the heart. Even if you look at another woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery already in your heart. That's what the Bible says. That's what Jesus said. And the Jew here is finding loopholes in the law. How so? Well, you remember they were allowed to write certificates of divorce. So what would they do? Well, when they wanted to commit adultery with another woman, they said they would just find fault with their current wives, write her a certificate of divorce, and then marry the one they wanted to commit adultery with. And Jesus said that you're, you're, help, you're helping everybody commit adultery when that happens. This is what they were doing. That was the loophole. In fact, the Jewish Talmud was said to accuse some of the most celebrated rabbis by name of this vice. Josephus also gave the same type of account. These were the things that they were doing. It's a simple fact of history that Jews were and still are at times among some of the most unpopular people. Why? Just because they're Jews? No, because they're causing 
this incorrect view of themselves and their God by being exclusive. You think Christianity is any different sometimes? See, it's their prideful arrogance that blinds them to this fact of how they're viewed. Look at what they said when Jesus was speaking to them. John 8, 33, Jesus is talking to them about being free in Christ by abiding in his word. It says, they, the Jews, answered, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How could you say you will be made free? Jesus is talking to them about being made free. And they're saying, We've, we are free. What are you talking about? We're Abraham's seed. We're free. But the fact of the matter was they've been in bondage to everybody. Do you remember? At that very moment, they were in bondage to the Romans. Before that, it was to the Greeks. Prior to that, it was the Medo-Persians. Then it was the Babylonians before that. And prior to that, all the way back, it was the Egyptians. They were a people always in bondage. Why? Because they didn't obey God. So people had a different view of their God. They thought themselves high and mighty. Look at our God. But because of the constant rebuke they had to go through, the Gentiles had a different view of their God. They didn't even want to be part of their God because of how these people acted. See, their pride and arrogance blinded. They were to be a missionary people, not an exclusive nation. And what they were resting on was a false floor that was ready to drop from beneath them at any moment. And the Apostle Paul lovingly and firmly warning them, and he was stern like the Lord was stern at times, but he's only stern with religious pretenders, not with lost, with religious pretenders. That's who he was stern with. And he was doing them a service by pointing out their sins. He was doing what the law was meant to do, bring them to a place of recognition of sin in an effort to bring repentance. Verse 24 now, as we get to this, what you see is what you get. I like this. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. Because of me, because of them, how so? Well, a life of purity tends to honor religion and its author, while the life of impurity has the reverse effect. The honor of God among the Gentile nations was somewhat in their hands, in a sense. And the way that I live my life is how somebody's going to view how my God is. You act like that, that's, and you're a Christian? You ever heard that one before? I've heard that. And yes, we fail. We're going to fail. And sometimes people use that as a cop-out. I understand that. But is there a consistency of that? Examine yourself. If God's people were this way, the likely conclusion was that their God is the same way. If the Jews have a reputation for vice, then the Gentiles' response will inevitably be that their God is contemptible. In other words, how people see us is how they see our God. A very interesting proposition here when you think about it. We tend to point fingers at how the heathen live, as they did in chapter 1. And isn't it interesting how they point their fingers right back? 
well, if you're so high and mighty and righteous, then why do you live your life the way that you do? I don't understand. You're saved and you still live like that? I don't get it. That doesn't make any sense to me. So why would I want to be part? You know, the interesting thing is, even today in Christianity, many times who can blame people by the way they view the Christian church sometimes? Even by churches that you would call these mega churches, even by pastors in those pulpits who have been teaching for many, many years and are not living out a life that's reaching out to the mission field anymore. They've got their people. It's good. We're just in our own little bubble now. See, Paul here quotes from the Old Testament in this verse, again, using their own scripture to make his point. Many believe it's from Isaiah 52.5, where it says, Those who rule over them make them wail, says the Lord. And my name is blasphemed continually every day. Others contend it's Ezekiel 36.20. It says this, when they, come to, when they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name when they said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of his land. Regardless of the scripture that he's using, Paul is quoting the Old Testament, the very word they boasted about, the very word they said, I understand what that means. And it was due to their inconsistent living that brought a stain on the name of God. This is what Paul is telling them. If there was consistent obedience, the Lord would not have to bring open rebuke. But there wasn't. The Jews' history is route with constant back and forth of rebuke and then blessing if you've ever read First and Second Kings, if you've ever read, you know, those Old Testament books, you see it constantly. And they obeyed the Lord and were blessed. And they disobeyed the Lord and they were, you know, uh, rebuked for it. We see it over and over and over. So due to this fact, the outside world watched in wonder, in complete wonder. And some even thought, what kind of God punishes and then heals his people at the same time. Why do I want to serve a God like that? All the time rebuking me for something. But it was because of their disobedience. I was reading some commentary from William Barclay, who points out many interesting things on how the Jews were viewed by the Gentiles in New Testament times. See, we always come from the Jewish standpoint, or what the Jews were going, but what were the Gentiles thinking about these people? who were supposed to be a light to a world. So I was reading this, some commentary on it. These are the things that they thought. They regarded Judaism as a barbarous superstition and the Jews as the most disgusting of races and as a most contemptible company of slaves. The origins of Judaism were twisted with a malicious ignorance. It was said that Jews had originally been a company of lepers, who had been sent by the king of Egypt to work in the sand quarries, and that Moses had rallied this band of leprous slaves and led them through the desert to Palestine. It was said that they worshipped a donkey's head, because in the wilderness a herd of wild donkeys had led them to water when they were dying of thirst. It was said that they abstained from pig's flesh, because the pig is specially liable to a skin disease called the itch, and it was that skin disease that the Jews had suffered from in Egypt. Interesting things said about these guys. 
Certain of Jewish customs were mocked by the Gentiles as well. It was said that their abstinence from pig's flesh provided many sources of fun. Plutarch thought that the reason for it might be that the Jews worshiped the pig as a god. They were saying the Jews worship pigs. That's what they were saying. Their God is filthy. Juvenal declares that Jewish clemency has granted to the pig the privilege of living to a good old age and that pig's flesh is more valuable to them than human flesh. The custom of observing the Sabbath was regarded as pure laziness. That's what they thought of them. This is what the impression that they were leaving on the other nations. And certain things which the Jews enjoyed infuriated the Gentiles. Well, what were those? It was the odd fact that unpopular as they were, the Jews had nonetheless received extraordinary privileges from the Roman government. Here are three examples. They were allowed to transport the temple tax every year to Jerusalem. And this became so serious in Asia about the year 60 BC that the export of currency was forbidden. And according to historians, no fewer than 20 tons of contraband gold were seized, which the Jews had been about to dispatch to Jerusalem. So there's some stealing going on. Two, that they were allowed, at least to some extent, to have their own courts and live according to their own laws. They had their own system separated out that the Gentiles didn't have. They had these special privileges, and they were not using them correctly, and the Gentiles knew that. See, they were getting away with certain things because of religion. There's a de- there is a decree issued by a governor called Lucius Antonius in Asia about 50 BC in which he wrote, Our Jewish citizens came to me and informed me that they had their own private gathering, carried out according to their ancestral laws and their own private place, where they settle their own affairs and deal with cases between each other. When they asked that this custom should be continued, I gave judgment that they should be allowed to retain this privilege. Why? Because they wanted to live peacefully with these people. They wanted to live peacefully with the Jews. And they knew if they didn't live peacefully with them, the Jews would rise up and fight against them and push and shove and strive when they're told to be a light. Do you see that happening in the nation today at all, anywhere? Things rising up all over the place and we feel like we're being attacked and we lash out. This is what the Jew was being viewed as, to be a light. Pretty amazing. Let me give you a third one. The Roman government respected the Jewish observance of the Sabbath. It was laid down that Jews could not be called to give evidence in a law Uh, in a law court on the Sabbath. It was laid down that if special handouts were being distributed to the people and the distribution fell on the Sabbath, the Jews could claim their share on the following day while everybody else had to do it when they were told. Interesting. And especially sore point with the Gentiles, the Jews enjoyed what they call astratia, that is, exemption from conscription to the Roman army. This exemption was directly due to the fact that the Jewish strict observance of the Sabbath obviously made it impossible for them to carry out military duties on the Sabbath. 
So it can easily be imagined with what resentment others might look on this special exemption from a duty which for them was a burden. Why do they get these special privileges when they don't even live what they teach? Wow, pretty amazing accusations. I see it in the church now. Why do they get these special exemptions when they don't even live a good life? Look how they live at work. Look how they are. But when they get to church, oh, they got the suit and tie on and, you know, they're perfect and straightened up. But how do they live outside of the church? Why would I ever want to be a believer in Jesus Christ if that's how it is? Happens all the time. Even from pastors. Some of them are the worst. The stories that we hear about in our meetings, it's amazing. These guys, these Jews, they're accused of hatred of their neighbors. It's called misanthropia and complete unsociability or amyxia. They're accused of hating their neighbors. They're completely unsociable with anybody outside of their sphere of influence. Tacitus said of them, among themselves, their honesty is inflexible, their compassion quick to move, but to all other persons, they show the hatred of antagonism. You're not a Jew? Then you're nothing. You're not a Christian? Oh, then you're nothing. Instead of being a missionary nation, they became an exclusive nation. In Alexandria, the story was that the Jews had taken an oath never to show kindness to a Gentile, and that they even offered a Greek in sacrifice to their God every year. Whether that's true or not, that was the story going around. And there's a reason that that story was going around. You ever hear anybody saying of Christians, oh man, they're a bunch of hypocrites. Why do those stories go around? Are these the things that's being demonstrated in the church? Tacitus said that the first thing Gentiles who converted to Judaism were taught to do was to despise the gods, to repudiate their nationality, and to disparage parents, children, and brothers. Juvenal declared that if a Jew was asked the way to any place, he refused to give any information except to another Jew, and that if anyone was looking for a well from which to drink, a Jew would not lead him to it unless he was circumcised. Pretty crazy. These were the things being said. All of that to say that the basic Jewish attitude to other people was described as a, one of contempt, and the inevitable response to such an attitude is always dislike. I find it interesting that the dislike of the Jew was a, a direct result of their own arrogance and disdain for others outside of themselves. Many times has the church views other people. They were almost antagonistic, provoking those to hatred and wrath when they were to be a light unto the lost. The Jews shut themselves off into a rigid community while shutting everyone else out, and they were hated for it. And then they sit back and they wonder why the world would come at them and hate them. Sometimes the church wonders why, oh, you know, we're so persecuted. Are we really here in the United States? Are we really so persecuted? I personally do not think so. I think we have so many freedoms and we have so many opportunities. 
to reach the lost still as missionaries. But we don't see it that way because we have this national pride. We think we deserve everything and we get arrogant about it. And if you don't see it the way that we see it, well, there you're condemned to hell. And we don't reach out to the lost. We condemn the lost. I think of when somebody comes at us, and I can't believe I'm going to use this illustration, but I think when somebody comes at us sometimes, the first thing we want to do is be like Rambo. We want to grab that machine gun and mow everybody down. But in that mowing of everybody down, we mow down the innocent. And we forget where we came from. Because what if in our sin, somebody mowed us down? But we take to the airwaves, we get on Facebook, and we get on Instagram, and we start telling people, I hope God condemns you. I hope God takes you out. Man, how sad that we have become this arrogant type of church. No missionary anymore. No missions anymore. As John the Baptist and Jesus did, the Apostle Paul here is calling for repentance. Are we calling for repentance? He brought them all into court, not to condemn, but to get them to settle out of court. And his attitude was like that of our Lord's, showing kindness by exposing sin and then telling truth. That's all we can do. We have to expose sin and then tell the truth about it. I can't make somebody accept Christ as much as I would love to. We continue to pray for them. Religion became exclusive and rigid. We have to tell people, we have to show kindness by exposing sin, telling the truth. Gentiles judged God by what they saw in the Jews. And who could blame them? And I wonder how the world looks at us and how they judge the church. I'm going to have to stop here because I have three more pages of notes, but time is up. <laughs> but man, we'll get into this next week. I'll, I'll, I'll bring these other things back up as we continue to look at these verses. We'll go through verses 25. We'll finish the chapter next week, but next week we'll look at What's the right attitude of the church? We'll look at a little bit of Jeremiah's life and what the Apostle Paul reminded Timothy to do. Pretty amazing. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and thank you, Lord, again for this day. Oh, there's so much to go over, so much to go through. And Lord, we pray for us as the church, Lord, that we would <clears throat> be a missionary church, Lord, still because we're still here. We pray, Father, that your word would reside in our hearts, Lord, that you reveal yourself to us, that you would point out, Lord, the things in our lives that need to change. Father, that we might be more used by you, God, that we might meet, reach more people as you intend to do, because you're patient, you're long-suffering, you were with us, you still are with us. Sometimes I wonder why you don't take me out. Lord, may we have a heart of gratitude and be grateful and thankful for where we live and the opportunities that we have. 
And may we reach out to the lost, Lord, rather than calling for your thunder, Father, and your lightning to take them out and spite them. May it be our desire for this church to reach those who don't know you so that they might come to know you and come with us, Lord. We praise you. We thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Everybody said amen.